Welcome, friends. You're listening to The Change Log, a podcast featuring deep discussions with the hackers, leaders, and innovators of the software world. On this episode, I'm joined by Paul Orlando to talk through some unintended consequences that occur when systems operate at scale. We discuss Goodhart's Law, the Cobra Effect, how to design incentive systems, those oh-so-hairy dependency management decisions, the risk of autonomous vehicles, and much more along the way. Quick shout out to our partners, Fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Influx Data, the makers of InfluxDB, a time series platform for building and operating time series applications. InfluxDB empowers developers to build IoT, analytics, and monitoring software. It's purpose-built to handle massive volumes and countless sources of timestamp data produced by sensors, applications, and infrastructure. Learn about the wide range of use cases of InfluxDB at influxdata.com solutions network monitoring, IoT monitoring, infrastructure and application monitoring. To get started, head to influxdata.com slash changelog and click get InfluxDB. Again, that's influxdata.com slash changelog. joined by Paul Orlando, who writes on systems, complexity, and second-order effects on his Unintended Consequences website. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Jared. Good to be here. Excited to have you. I've been enjoying your writings for a little while now, and I think a lot of them, if they don't directly relate to the craft of software development, they definitely are tangential and have interesting implications for software folks. So let's start by learning about you and how you started writing about this topic. Sure. Tell you a little bit about how I got started with it first. So um, I was thinking about this just today. You know, um, nothing systematic about it whatsoever. So I saw a bit of news uh, one day. So this is, I guess, two and a half, maybe three years ago, um, when Google came out with uh, Google Duplex, that voice AI, and they did this really cool demo. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember. It was like ordering flowers or doing laundry or whatever. Yeah, they call and order things for you and interact with a real human or something, yeah. Exactly. They did this demo, and uh, a friend of mine had actually had a voice AI startup that he had shut down maybe a year before that. And so I was kind of like messaging with him. Was his timing off or you know, is he going to revitalize it you know, somehow? But uh, it got me thinking initially about scale effects that would be possible with something like a voice AI. So in the same afternoon, you know, I bought the domain name, um, put up the first blog post, you know, put up like a WordPress site, which is why the domain is, you know, too very long and difficult to spell words, <laughs> yeah. which I thought at the time was clever, but, and, and also like, you know, a dot ES at the end to make it even. Right. Almost too clever, perhaps. Yes. Uh, make it even more difficult. But um, the, uh, you know, that's literally how I got started, you know, just kind of having this spark and then just like cranking out uh, a first quick post about what some of those unintended consequences with 
the existence of a voice AI might be. And then I kind of had this thing, yeah. you know, so, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't write on like an existing blog of mine or like a medium post or whatever. I had this thing. So it just became something I was you know, going to return to. And the first few months, I don't know, I might've written every couple of weeks, whenever something interested me. Um, again, I was not trying to make this a big part of what I did, but Kind of early on, maybe a couple of months in, um, one of the posts that I wrote got to you know, like the, the top page of Hacker News. And that was the first time I had experienced that drug, you know, that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that feeling. Um, and it kind of encouraged me to keep going. So long story short, I've written over 100 of these you know, articles on various unintended consequences topics and things that happen could be something in history, something in the news, but I'm really trying to educate myself. And along the way, I've just discovered, yeah, a bunch of other people seem to get some value out of it too. It's fascinating because we work so often in the small, we have a hard time grasping the implications. And this is all new, like networked systems is new to all of us, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you're going back 50, 70 years, but to many of us, it's like, especially once social media blew up, like the implications of software at scale or systems at scale Mm. is something that we're all learning and grasping and realizing maybe years later, uh uh-oh, this was actually not a great idea. I'm curious how your curiosity with this topic and maybe your expertise, you write very well. I learn when I'm reading your stuff. Uh, It's insightful. It's explanatory. Like, What's your expertise? What's your background? Are you you a writer? Are you an economist? Are you... Psychologist or psychiatrist? Where, where are you coming from? Sure. So I've worked in tech my whole career. I have been just about always on the business side. Uh-huh. So um, started out early on doing voiceover IP, you know, uh, you know work. Uh, this is like a little before Skype was around. Mm-hmm. So it was about connecting telecom carriers, you know, to each other and like routing traffic differently. Um, and that's certainly when I got a, a great appreciation for how, in that case, telecom networks can lead to these you know, unusual outcomes. You know, we can dive into that you know, maybe later on if it's a fit. But um, I had the experience also of starting a startup and making you know, not 100%, but maybe 90% of the possible mistakes in doing that. And just really getting interested in how people figure things out. And how things ended up, you know, end up being differently than you expect. So in our case, it was also a telecom-related, you know, business. What we ended up doing was connecting patients uh, for the patients who were going through a serious health um, situation, connecting them to another patient, and that was part of their recovery process. So you get to talk to another person who has kind of gone through, you know, um, some difficult recovery, and we protect the patient privacy and you know, we, we would kind of um, push out whatever their doctor or support group leader wanted afterwards. It could be a survey. It could be, here's some health goals for you, you know, this next week. But getting to that point was this, like, this like jumbled, like, you know, certainly not systematic, you know, uh, process for us where we had all these different ideas of how people were going to use it. And then we're surprised in what ended up emerging Mm-hmm. And what people were happy to pay for, you know, later on. But I got interested in that process, like how founders figure things out or often don't figure things out. So um, I was in New York at the time. 
I ended up visiting a bunch of startup accelerators just to like mentor, you know, meet people and kind of like talk and, you know, I guess coach back then. And I realized I wanted to make that a bigger part of what I did. And New York uh, back then, so this is like 2011, 2012, New York had probably 10 startup accelerators. And, you know, I didn't think it made sense to try to start the 11th one. So I was looking for a new market to enter. And earlier in my career, I had actually worked in Hong Kong. I worked in China a lot, you know, other parts of Asia. So I did a scouting trip just to try to suss out, okay, maybe maybe Hong Kong or maybe some other location in Asia might be a good fit for something like a startup accelerator. And I landed with a, mm-hmm. a bunch of meetings, you know, set up. Yeah, I met a ton of you know new people, got introduced around in Hong Kong, and ultimately determined, okay, yes, this market is, I think, you know, ripe for something like a startup accelerator. Kept the conversations going, you know, when I went back to New York, but ultimately spun up a pilot program and then you know uh, raised like a small fund to support an actual startup accelerator and ended up building the first program in Hong Kong, and then. Um, from there, yeah, I, I ended up, uh, I got you know, pulled in to run this uh, unusual startup accelerator that was based in Rome. Huh. Um, you know, I've, uh, like now I'm, I'm helping this big nonprofit, you know, build a community health related accelerator. And day to day, you know, I've been at uh, USC, so the University of Southern California. I teach there and I also run the university startup incubator program. So I've kind of been in this, this uh, you know, early stage venture space for a little while. Right. And I don't know, for me, there's a lot of overlap with the systems or unintended consequences uh, interests that I have. Uh, it's certainly a side project, but that's kind of my process for how I got, uh, got here. Very cool. Well, let's dive right in, shall we? So the first one that I wanted to talk about, and let's just first say that you write about all sorts of systems, not just software systems. This is something that would be interesting, I think, to the curious developer mind, but not everything that Paul writes would land on changelog news. You might find it on hacker news, perhaps, some things, but uh, we hope we find a good cross-section here. So Goodhart's Law is one that we have discussed on the podcast. I think it was last year with Dave Kerr. I did a show called Laws for Hackers to Live By, and Goodhart's Law was one of the laws that we discussed, and you open up a post about that that says Peter Drucker said that if you can't measure it, you can't improve it, but he didn't mention the second order effect of that statement, what changes after people get used to the measurements. Mm. So this keys into what Goodhart's law is, which I feel like has kind of been morphed a little bit to be applied to our circumstances. Can you want to break down Goodhart's law for us? Sure. So... The explanation of it that I like and what I think is the most commonly heard one, actually, it doesn't come from Goodhart himself. It comes from an anthropologist whose name was Marilyn Strathern. So usually when you hear Goodhart's law, you hear it as when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Right. And so... And Goodhart never said that. He said something similar. Yeah, he, he was, I mean, um, and there, there's like so many uh, variations of this. You know, everything from like going back to universities in the UK hundreds of years ago and how they were being measured, you know, um, when people were trying to, for the first time in history maybe, you know, be quantitative about outcomes. Um, you know, there's you know, uh, economic, you know, uh, more economic focused, you know, versions of this. I like this formulation 
you know, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Um, I think it's really easily understood. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly think there's like a crossover uh, there uh, to, you know, could be software development, could just be general business, economic background. I kind of further summarize this, you know, maybe in, the, in saying that, you know, Goodhart's Law, it has origins in a, a couple of different places. So one is that behavior change that occurs when people start trying to achieve a metric rather than a goal. Right. In other words, here are the targets that you have. We think these targets are connected to this goal, but really we're going to measure you based on these targets. Right. Right. So it's a little different than trying to achieve a goal. And then, you know, the other origin, which is related, is that we create some projects because we are choosing proxies for goals uh, you know, themselves. So I usually think of that one more in a, a healthcare you know, uh, setting. In other words, we have some ideas for what it means to be healthy. And like somebody goes to the doctor and they say, you know, they've got some health complaints. The doctor realizes, hey, your blood pressure is you know, high right. compared to what is considered normal. So they put you on a, a blood pressure medication. That itself has some side effects you know, for you. And you end up feeling not healthier, but we did achieve that proxy of, okay, well, health is determined by a number of different factors. We think a, a, a metric that's related to your general health is your blood pressure. We're going to put you on medication, but you know, it has these other outcomes that are not you know, beneficial for the patient. Yeah. So let me repeat back and make sure I'm following you. I think I am. So there's almost, there's these two strata, right? Or strata where like the first one is by knowing the objective the objective becomes less useful because I'm targeting that thing. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is like the objective or the target isn't the actual goal. Right. It's just like the closest thing we can get to the goal. And because there's that, what you know, engineers would call an impedance mismatch, it's not really, but because it's not a one for one, you're not actually optimizing for what you want to be. It's just like, because health is like, how do you measure health, right? You like a heuristic. And so it's like, we take these things, we try to get these proxies and we optimize for the proxies, you can't, almost de facto, you're not optimizing for the thing that you want to be. You're just getting close and this can backfire. Yeah, that's it. And it reminds me of something that you said actually early on, which is we're in the relative you know, early days of dealing with network systems or like, you know, large systems. Yeah. And something like Goodhart's Law, you know, if you, if you think in the history of humanity, you know, um, people were not living in these highly connected societies. I mean, like internationally connected, right? You'd be highly connected in your local group, which might be pretty isolated from, you know, others, you know, relatively speaking. You wouldn't really have something like Goodhart's Law come into place, like, uh, or it wouldn't be an issue. Right. You know, first of all, people were not, I think, thousands of years ago, uh, at least, you know, not using uh, metrics you know, uh, in, the, in the way that we think of them. Yeah, there's a sophistication involved. Sure. Yeah. And, and then you also don't have these scale effects. So if you do have a, like a, a small society that makes bad choices, those outcomes are pretty local. And it doesn't spread globally, so you know, uh, you know, most of the impact, you know, in the past was local, and you know, in a highly connected world, you know, uh, we we kind of have to be a little more careful about some of the the big actions we take because they can lead to these really un- you know big unintended effects somewhere else. Right. So there's a couple of 
ways we can exemplars for this. The common one in software that all developers in, innately or inherently understand is like if you use lines of code as a measurement for productivity, then you just failed. So like, yeah. you know, especially if you know that's the target, right? Like it, as soon as it's the target, you're like, oh, okay, I get paid per line of code. Mm-hmm. Every self-respecting developer knows how to optimize for that particular target. And that's not actually a, pro- a good proxy for productive you know, work. That's like an obvious one. Right. But it gets less and less obvious and as you get better proxies, but you're still working in this kind of uncanny valley for what you're actually trying to get to. So it's a, it's a difficult problem, right? No, it is. It is. Or using like bugs fixed, you know, as well. If the same person is writing the code and then, you know, uh, being compensated for like fixing the bugs uh, or that's a metric, you know, like, you know, like, oh, I can find, I can find a lot more, uh, you know, now if I also create them, you know, intentionally, like if there's like a bad actor, you know, kind of involved. Yeah. A lot of game theory comes into this, right? So you give an example in your post about Groupon Mm -hmm. with regards to, I think it was a vanity metric or a specific metric for a company that was either IPOing or raising around. Right. And here is another situation where the measurement is like how how good of an investment is this or how quality is this company's prospects or whatever, which is really hard to measure. And so we have lots of different criteria that we look at. Mm-hmm. I think in that case, it was like they made it look like they had great stuff going on in China, but they did it by... Faking numbers. Do you remember the the example there? Right, and and this came from like a a conversation that I had. I was I was in Shanghai for work, um, and it was like shortly before Groupon's IPO. And I you know, was talking to like this friend who told me, yeah, like they're they're hiring like crazy in China. They really don't care who it is that they're hiring. They're not looking for people specifically who are like great at that, um, like telesales. Uh, you know, kind of a job, they'll, they'll overpay, it doesn't matter. The reason is to bump that IPO price another 10%, say. Right. We just need to show, or like the company just needs to show, yeah, we've got, I don't know what the number was, you know, 1,000, 5,000 people like, you know, in, in China. In other words, that is the, you know, that's kind of like a vanity metric for, mm-hmm. all right, we have a lot of you know, uh, prospects, a lot of promise for- They're Like salespeople, right? Right. And, you know, it's if the actual goal is bump up the IPO price, it's like, oh, okay, that makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. Not for building a sustainable business. You know, you would, you would hire completely differently or you would hire more slowly or you'd hire like, you know, uh, like a different background. Right. Um, but, you know, you, you have somebody reading like a, you know, a, a prospectus and all they see is, well, 5,000 people, you know, uh, you know, hired in China. This must be, you know, uh, an amazing opportunity. Uh, I should invest. But uh, yeah, like it, it, once you dig in and, and I'd even say like maybe another theme for me in the writing, you know, I, I've approached this topic because like I did not have a background in systems analysis. So, you know, I didn't, I wasn't like, you know, doing this as, I don't know, an economist or, you know, you know I didn't have like that theory. So I always found that I was always like working to make sure that I understood uh, what I was uh, eventually going to try to write about. Uh-huh. So that often meant, okay, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to read all the papers that were cited in some other article that I read. And then sometimes you find, oh, like this person's citing a paper and it actually is not in support of what they are claiming. It's, you know, it's like the opposite. Right. So uh, once you dig into it, you find, oh, like the, the story is a little different than what's presented. But um 
And this is another unintended consequence of just like, say, something like a fast moving news cycle. People are presented a ton of information. Like nobody has the time to really do the research. And as a result, the quality of uh, the information that you're presented might be pretty low. It might also be hard for you to know that. Right. Unless you're like me and willing to like dive into, <laughs> you know, like you know, one of these topics, you know, early in the morning. Right. But uh, you can't do that all the time, of course. Well, that's why I think we need experts in different niches willing to do kind of the yeoman's work and to become the critic or the curator of a particular topic or niche that then other people can trust and vet that person and maybe they become less trustworthy and so they're no longer the critic. But we need experts, you know, watching the, the news cycle because it's so fast, it's so loose, and it's, it's misincentivized, you know, around clicks and traffic and all these things that we've learned are have huge unintended consequences is the the metric of clicks or page views for news has caused untold consequences in our society because that incentive is not aligned with high quality well reported thoughtful news and analysis right it's all about speed mm. it's about sensationalism it's about things that don't optimize for truth right i had written and i'm have forgotten the title of this post but yeah a while back i wrote about that topic so how the changed media business model resulted in a lot more news right more people reading it or, or viewing it but more polarized you know societies or or like you know like less accurate information and yeah like that that idea like um if you go back and look at the printed newspapers, so you know you're at least going back to like the 90s there. Like you know, if you go back and look at like the printed newspapers, right, or even the the news that was on like the three major networks, you know, back in that era, mm -hmm. there were not huge differences in the way the same story would be uh, presented. A little bit, but for there to be a successful business model, any of these news outlets had to more or less go for the mainstream. You know, so they couldn't be too skewed in any one direction because they couldn't reach that like target market. It was it was mass distribution. Modern era, you know, you could have a newsletter that's uh, paid that has whatever a thousand subscribers, and you know it provides enough for, like you know paid subscribers. It provides enough income for that person to keep keep writing it, and their focus is on some like you know really. You know, strange, you know, niche mm -hmm. that um, you never knew existed or maybe did not exist in the past because it's, you know, it's kind of been created as the business models have changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like there's maybe a bit of nostalgia <laughs> for those uh, for those days, a generation or two ago uh, when it comes to reporting the news. Yep. Certainly business models had a, had a part in that change. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Square is the platform that sellers trust 
there is a massive opportunity for developers to support Square sellers by building apps for today's business needs. And I'm here with Shannon Skipper, head of developer relations at Square. Shannon, can you share some details about the opportunity for developers on the Square platform? Yeah, absolutely. So we have millions of sellers who have unique needs and Square has apps like our point of sale app, like our restaurants app, but there are so many different sellers, tuxedo shops, florists, who need specific solutions for their domain. And so we have a Node SDK written in TypeScript that allows you to access all of the backend APIs and SDKs that we use to power the billions of transactions that we do annually. And so there's this ma massive market of sellers who need help from developers. They either need a bespoke solution built for themselves on their own node stack, where they are working with Square Dashboard, working with Square Hardware, or with the e-com, you know, what you see is what you get builder. And they need one more thing. They need an additional build. And then finally, we have the app marketplace where you can make a node app and then distribute it so it can get in front of millions of sellers and be an option for them to adopt. Very cool. All right. If you want to learn more, head to developer.squareup.com to dive into the docs, APIs, SDKs, and to create your Square Developer account. Start developing on the platform Sellers Trust. Again, that's developer.squareup.com. maybe just attaching hard to Goodhart's law. Let's hop to the Cobra effect because these two things are, are interrelated. This has to do with incentive structures and the design of incentive structures. So many of us are building these things or maybe we're living inside of these things with regards to social media. You know, you mentioned that moment that you hit the Hacker News homepage, right? And you were incentivized mm -hmm. to get back to number one again, you know, someday soon as you felt that dopamine rush of having your words read by many people and debated and enjoyed and maybe not enjoyed and all that comes alongside that. Sometimes it's the best of times and the worst of times to be to get all that attention all at once. But uh, this Cobra effect, you've written about it a couple of times, and this is really the idea of you know sometimes your incentive systems go wildly haywire. Sometimes because Goodhart's law or for other reasons, they're just not well designed. Tell us the Cobra effect, how it got its name. I think it's one of the best examples of how it can go wrong. Sure. So the Cobra effect and this is also sometimes called adversarial good heart or, or perverse you know, uh, effects. In other words, you're trying to improve some problem and the actions that you take end up making it even worse than it was before. In other words, like this, this requires people. So like people, you know, the, this is where the adversarial you know, part comes in, right? Yeah, people are adversarial. Well, they can be. Or if you're presenting <laughs> yeah. them with uh, a, a silly, you know, rule, um, you know, um, you know, or like there's a, a new regulation, you know, people will find a loophole, right? Um, that ends up harming that goal. The Cobra effect, and this is a, another, probably just the name itself also, overlaps with you know unintended consequences. So uh, the story behind the Cobra effect is something that, as far as we know, never happened. But the story is during colonial India. So when the British were in India, some British administrator decided that they wanted to reduce or eliminate the number of Cobras 
maybe this is in you know, Delhi. I'm, you know, I'm not sure where. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to try to achieve that goal, they put up a bounty and they say, okay, I'm going to pay a bounty if you show up with a cobra skin and that's going to get rid of the cobras. Right? And then the story, of course, is, well, people discovered, oh, so I should just raise cobras yeah. and you know, turn them in for like, you know, the, the bounty and you know, raise more cobras and turn them in. And then the British realize what's happening. They eliminate the bounty and then everybody you know, releases the cobras. You know, and so you have a worse problem than you had before. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, you know, this is the story. It has definitely happened in a couple other uh, cases in history. And so like after uh, you know, that cobra story, the most famous one that um, there is – um, you know, history behind is um, uh, also a colonial you know, situation. So the French in Vietnam in um, late 1800s, I believe. So they discovered that uh, rats were spreading plague and that they were like you know, using the newly built sewer system in and, you know, different cities to like you know, uh, travel around the city and get into houses. And also, of course, you know, houses that were you know, occupied by the colonists themselves. So they set up this bounty to you know, uh, pay people to kill rats. And I can't think of a worse job than having to go into a sewer and like hunt rats you know, for a bounty. Mm-hmm. But that's what people were doing. Um, then at one point, the French said, you know, enough with the dead rats. I don't want to collect these things. Just the, the tail is enough. Oh. You know, just show up with the tail. I'll, I'll pay the bounty. And so then what was discovered was, you know, people discovered rats running around with no tails. In other words, like. <laughs> so they kill them. They just cut the tails off. Yeah. I'm just going to, I'm just going to collect the tail. Like if that's what you're paying me for it. Um, or, you know, like raising rats, you know, uh, again, uh, probably a little easier to raise rats than to raise cobras, you know, for the bounty. So, when I looked at this, you know, so I looked into the history of this effect, and like the the third famous example is with feral pigs in uh, in the U.S. You know, outside of a military base. So the first thing that struck me was the three famous examples all involve animals, mm-hmm. and I started thinking, well, who is making up these these rules? Like, it's certainly not somebody who understood anything about these animals' life cycles, or like you know, how they uh, how they naturally reproduce. And I started just like diving into, n- now I know like, you know, more about, you know, the life cycle of the cobra than I ever you know, <laughs> I thought I would, uh, or rats, you know, uh, or pigs. But um, I came away and I wrote that first article on the cobra effect, you know, saying, okay, the solution is actually wrapped up in the biology of the animal. So in other words, if you know what the gestational period is for a cobra, a rat, a pig, you know, you can design that incentive program around that. So for example, you know, and I proposed, here's, here's a way that you might, you know, structure the actual cobra or rat, you know, or pig example. So if you know, it takes, you know, however many months, you know, to get from, you know, the, the mated, you know, cobras to the eggs, to the hatchlings and on, you then just, you know, work around that. So you either have a short-term, um, you know, incentive program. Hey, we're only paying it this month. Or you pay at a rate that it makes no sense for people to actually like raise the animals. Mm. In other words, okay, I've got to like house them, feed them, you know, you know, you know keep them, you know, like uh, and, you know, deal with the danger of having them around. You can do something around just that biology. It's it's tough, but at least you don't get this spiraling out of control effect of people just breeding more and more 
um, you know, of the animals for, you know, uh, for the reward. Yeah. So the interesting thing that I found, and this goes back to that, uh, that Hacker News, you know, post, because this was one of the ones that, um, you know, got attention there. It was interesting to me because some people had a little difficulty uh, with that. And they, they basically said, no, 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 you don't get it. Like the, the, the whole story is that you cannot really control this. And that's, you know, that's just the way it is. Mm. And I agree, there's always going to be something you didn't think about. But this example that I'm giving of like, just work with the biology, you know, when you're constructing an animal related reward system. Mm-hmm. If you at least do that, you know, you get, you, you, you at least avoid that most obvious of, you know, bad outcomes. I'm sure you'll get something else, but, you know, at least like avoid that most obvious one rather than just throwing up your arms and saying, this is an unsolvable problem. So that's, uh, you know, that, you know, again, it's just something that got me thinking and like, how do you apply that elsewhere? I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. You wonder how far you can kick that can down the road and to, to the point where the can becomes not, you know, not a big deal. It's fine because mm-hmm. like you said, there is going to be something else. Like it's almost like that old saying, like no good deed goes unpunished. It's like no, no good reward system goes on game. Like someone's going to game you. And a lot of it's a, a cat and mouse uh, circumstance where you're just constantly changing the rules of the game. And then the adversarial people change the way they attack. And I think in those circumstances, like once you realize that first reaction, it seems like it was such a poorly thought out plan in the first place. I think maybe what you're saying is slow down, understand the problem better, perhaps like in the, in your case, like the gestation phase of the animals and like really understand cobras before you design then put the system out to the public before it can be tested and maybe you'll be able to skip those first two rounds of just obviously bad and get into the the the, the more sinister and effect you know still effective but maybe less consequential gaming that's going to happen and the other piece of that i think is two of the three you know famous examples involve a colonial power you know, doing something and I'll say doing it at, at scale. Yes. In other words, here's the pronouncement, you know, we have the budget, we're going to pay this reward and then things fall apart without that scale effect. Mm -hmm. You know, you would have some little local trial of trying to do a reward system. You would discover, okay, this didn't work out. Let's reconfigure this. And then you would maybe evolve yourself to a better type of an incentive structure. But if you're doing something really top down and maybe for all I know, like the person who made that decision, you know, uh, does not, you know, or did not you know, live with any of the outcomes. They were, you know, in, you know, uh, across the world, they were in, like, you know, in a different city. They're not necessarily the ones who are going to suffer if the system uh, does fall apart. Yeah. But uh, yeah, scale effects are, uh, are, are tricky and they certainly lead to a lot of unintended effects. Yeah, so perhaps the the takeaway there for those designing these systems is iteration and you know feature flags effectively. If we're talking software development teams like mm-hmm. you know small sample size first, roll it out to yourself and your and your coworkers and see how it changes your behavior. I'm just thinking of like now a software system mm-hmm. and like here's a new incentive structure inside of our system that we want to we want to have more of this kind of activity and so we're going to make this feature well, roll it out to a few people and see how it changes their behavior because you'll game your own system. I know I've done it. It's just how we are, like any system. I become fascinated with TikTok's algorithm. Not so much the app and the, the content, but the algorithm. 
is fascinating to me. It's it's almost tactile. I'm not sure if you've used it before, mm. but it's like the fastest reacting algorithm that I've seen to where I almost feel like it's tactile. I can see it changing the next thing based on, I think there's only two factors according to the TikTok folks. Um, the first one's like the duration of the video, like how long you watch before you swipe. Mm-hmm. And obviously like the longer you go on, it's going to like, right. you know, and then the other one, I forget what the other one is. There's just two factors, but their algorithm is so responsive that it almost like evolves as I use it throughout a session. I'm just sitting here watching it. So like people will game and I'm just, I'm more interested in what the algorithm is doing than the content, um, which maybe makes me a bad use case. But point is like you will game your own system and then roll it out to a few other people. Right. And like start to scale. So you don't have to just blast it and, and get that, that top down huge scale effect immediately mm-hmm. scale it out in phases and, and iterate uh, before you make a big mistake. It's no, it's so true. And I, and I, I don't know enough about TikTok, you know, to comment on what you're saying, but I, I have heard, you know, people describe it in that way. What's weird about it is I'm not sure if it's actually good or bad. Sure. That it's like that because yeah. uh, people say it's the best algorithm in terms of like keeping you using the application, but it's so obvious. Like it's, it's almost like it could have a UI to me at least and maybe because I'm like a developer, but I'm sitting here using it and I just know, I'm almost like, I know what's going to happen if I auto swipe this one or if I, if I, oh, don't watch this video for too long. I don't want more of this content. Quick, swipe away, you know? But that's also interesting because it's it's then you with your realization of what is happening behind the scenes, you are changing your behavior. Like maybe you would have watched that video to the end. Right, but I don't want it to think that I want to watch it. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Like, um, I always think of, um, so I, you know, I've been helping different organizations or or corporates like build innovation programs or build, you know, accelerator type programs. And in the beginning, when I'm working with someone, um, you know, they often want to see like, well, I I need to see like the entire plan. Like, you know, show me exactly how this unfolds and like, you know, like what happens like, you know, week to week. And I always push back on that just with the realization or the experience that I'm really not sure who I'm, who I'm going to encounter in your organization. Like I haven't met that many people yet. I don't know, like, mm-hmm. are they you know, bought into this yet? Like, or like what their skill sets are, you know, uh, so far, or how, like how, how dedicated they are to like this new thing. So I kind of want to see that a bit, you know, first before I design something fully and to be honest, I never want to really design the whole thing end to end because I know I'm going to change week to week depending on what's going on or like you know, I'll, I'll need to spend more time in one area or another. Yeah, there, there's there's often you know pushback there because people want to think like, well, certainly you could design this you know end to end and it is it's something like you could write down. It, it's you know it's just about like you know, following you know these you know however many steps mm-hmm. and. Um, just about anything involving people. I think you have to have that flexibility to be able to like, you know, zoom in, zoom out, slow down, speed up. You know, that's what makes an innovation program more powerful. That's what makes, um, you know, what you're talking about, you know, you know, with, you know, with TikTok, you know, uh, you know, more powerful. Yeah. You have to be comfortable with that uncertainty and like there's strength in that uncertainty. Kind of like, um, I did write about this. This is a totally different, you know, connection of thought, but, um, uh, the Peltzman effect about like uncertainty in our environment or in driving, huh. you know, uh, actually being something that creates more safety. 
Oh, so you just drive slower because you're less certain. You might drive you know, more slowly. You might just like be more aware when you're driving around. Um, mm. And like once you then like you know mandate uh, a lot of these safety um, measures could be road signs. It could be um, you know seatbelts, you know, seatbelts, right? You know the way you paint you know lines on the road. As a result, people um, give up a little bit of their their natural you know uh, like their defense mechanisms. Their their defenses are down because they feel so safe. Sure. And in result, they become less safe. Yeah. But if you make it less safe, their defenses are up. And so as a result, they might be more safe. That is interesting. I've never considered that before. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if this was him or me, um, but uh, <laughs> must have been him. I, I don't think I would have thought of this. But um, he, he was basically looking or somebody was looking at the effect of uh, what would happen when a, a country or a city would change the side of the road that people drove on mm. so like this happened like famously in sweden in the 60s you know uh, iceland uh you know a number of different places went from driving on one side of the road to the other and so like you would just think like that's got to be like complete chaos you know mm-hmm. like everybody is changing you know like you know, they're doing like a mirror image of you know, what they used to do and then um the actual natural experiment that unfolded was Oh, the place became safer for a while because everybody is so careful about driving around. Oh, I've got to make sure that I, I turn in a different way now. I'm watching for traffic from a different direction. And uh, yeah, there was a a traffic engineer, um, Monderman, I think was his name, who was designing road systems where there would be like no signs at all. Uh-huh. So like the the only inputs are like if you pure if, chaos. <laughs> Well, well, but it actually was pretty safe. Yeah, like so. In other words, you know, uh, and I think even like maybe getting rid of a curb or something. You know, like so, like you know, pedestrians who want to cross the street, making eye contact with the driver, the driver yeah. seeing them slowing down. You know, then they cross, and so it seems like this would just be total chaos. And actually, uh, in his rollouts, you know. It being pretty effective. That reminds me of a scene from The Mandalorian where they're commenting on the surprising lack of guardrails on walkways in Star Wars movies, you know, mm-hmm. where they finally got self-referential because there's like, no, you know, like it's, it's so hazardous. You'd think that like some sort of safety council would be like, let's put a handrail in. And I can't remember which episode it is, but they send a guy out to hit a thing on, you know, along this chasm. And he's like, no guardrails? Like, come on, I'm not going out there. And it's kind of like, well, actually, you're, you're more safe because you're like really paying attention to every step is crucial, yeah, knowing that this it. is dangerous. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents impact everyone, not just SREs. Fire Hydrant gives teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, this can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant gives you incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency. You can declare and mitigate incidents all inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. 
incident analytics light extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident run books, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want, create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. Try Fire Hydrant free for 14 days. Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. Garmin, the GPS maker, had an unintended consequence recently. Uh, some downtime, an outage. We want to tell that story and we'll get into some of these problems we have around dependencies. Sure. So this was one that I, uh, as I remember, I saw the news and I just like wrote the post up in like no time, uh, you know, like right away. So um, the story, so Garmin, you know, um, Location, you know, based services, um, you know, provider used by a lot of uh, small uh, plane pilots. You know, um, they'll sell like physical GPS devices. Exactly. Um, other people who are you know like out you know, hiking, camping, um, but uh, so they they went offline for a while, and the the story was a group with just like the great name Evil Corp. You know, I think you know based in <laughs> Russia, I believe. Um, you know, which uh, this is their business, you know, in in the ransomware business, which can, uh, you know, can be yeah. good money, I guess. Um, so they had their uh, wasted locker ransomware, which is also, you know, given other companies some problems. But they, uh, I believe, encrypted, and I'm not sure now in, in thinking back, like they, they encrypted some part of Garmin's service, so it's it's not usable. Basically said, you know, it's easy. You pay $10 million and we give you the keys. Garmin is a multi-billion-dollar business, so yeah. you'd think, oh, the easy thing is just pay the ten million dollars. That's the fastest solution, probably the cheapest solution. And they uh, they kind of went back and forth for a while and and didn't, and and maybe actually in the end did you know pay uh, the, hmm. the ransom. You know, they um, U.S.-based company. You know, they're they're not supposed to you know, uh, pay something like that. There's I think ways of skirting you know around so you're not breaking the letter of the law perhaps but uh you know there's this trade-off that we have if we become dependent on using a specific product you know specific piece of technology and so if the only way that you're going to be able to navigate is to use this one device and then it's offline uh you have a real problem so i wrote this piece not to try to convince everybody to be able to navigate by the stars again, but uh, you know, just to draw attention to things like this. Like we we certainly go through most of our lives expecting that you know there is 100% uptime, or we're not going to have to deal with you know some like some weird outage. Um, outages of this type are you know it's you know it's more of the norm I'd say than mm-hmm. uh, like you know once in a lifetime. So yeah, I, I felt like this was uh, something that kind of connected to 
you know, if I remember right, maybe a couple of other um, examples that I had written about. It was like the Twitter hack that happened at around the same time, I believe. So this is when there was, um, and I think this is more of a, a social engineering hack that somebody had figured out, but basically they gained access to, and I believe it was only like verified accounts. So like yeah, all of a sudden one day you saw, you know, like, Elon Musk or Bill Gates or you know, uh, like, you know, oh yeah, I remember that Kanye West, like like tweeting about, hey, I, I want to give back, you know, to my community, and so if you send me, it was a Bitcoin thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, you send me a certain amount of Bitcoin, I'll send like double the amount back, right? Um, and so going back to algorithms, so like Twitter's algorithm, even though people realize pretty early on, okay, this is a scam, yeah. Um, the algorithm sees, well, wow, everybody is talking about and like you're commenting and like you're like replying to engagements through the roof. Yeah, engagements through the roof. So we we want to boost these posts, and of course it was doing like the opposite of uh, what they wanted. Um, so uh, in this case, you know, it was a much more modest um, you know financial reward for whoever the scammer was. I think it was only around a hundred thousand dollars in Bitcoin that um, you know they ended up getting away with, but. Um, you have scams that can scale, so you can scale through a social network like Twitter, or you have something like uh, you know, like the Garmin you know uh, ransomware uh, situation where I'm dependent upon this one piece of tech. Right now, I cannot do the thing that I need to do at this moment, or it's or now like you know, navigating for me is impossible, or it's really dangerous. So yeah, like I I like just like bringing attention to these things. You know, for me. When I wrote them, I think I was calling back to uh, some of the writing I did about autonomous vehicles, um, you know, in, in both of these you know, uh, you know, examples. But um, yeah, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll kind of like you know, loop in you know the thought on autonomous vehicles there. Please do. Yeah, go ahead. And I've been writing on this topic, you know, even before I had this unintended consequences, you know, blog. But um, I remember. A few years ago, like I, I saw a um, a, VT, a VC, you know, uh, I believe, tweet, you know, um, that he was using support for autonomous vehicles as kind of a intelligence test. In other words, if you did not support them, you know, it's a, it's like a mark against you. Well, okay, because you don't understand <laughs> how things can improve, and you know, whatever. And um, so I really started wondering about, well, okay, is that is that a good test, first of all? And right, because I was failing the test. And it's not that I'm against AVs. Like I like the concept, I like the theory a lot, and I do not want to be a proponent of three thousand people a month in the U.S. alone, like you know, dying in traffic accidents. Like I don't want to like say no. Let's maintain the status quo. Right. But um, when I started to think through what ultimately, you know can happen when you do roll out, you know, like large scale, uh, higher level, like level four, level five, like uh, autonomous vehicles. I started realizing that, you know, while you might have, say, an average day where the uh, amount of fatalities are much lower than today, you also have the risk of certain days of the year and you have no idea when, where there's like a huge burst up. Why is that? So that's because similar to like the Garmin or Twitter examples, like you have things that can, you have an effect that can scale, whether it is a hack, whether it is a bug. I see. So like some, some hack disables the brakes on all these things and like exactly. nobody can break right. for that three minute and you have millions of them on the road and bam. 
Right. Okay. Right. And and so like you have to at least acknowledge there's this risk there. And again, like I don't want to say I'm not like anti technology, obviously. I'm not like saying, okay, well, we can never create a better world. Like you certainly can. But if the system that you're putting in place does not or if or if any of the people who are talking about like you know, uh, you know building these systems yeah. um is not really you know, they're not really addressing, like what do you do in uh, these situations? And I started thinking, okay, so if I wanted to reverse things, what if I wanted to take only human-driven cars and say, okay, how do I make human driving much more dangerous than it is today? You know, I can't really do it. Like, what would I have to do? I'd have to encourage weird legislation to like allow five-year-olds to drive. I'd have to like encourage people to drink, you know, and then drive. I have to like remove, you know, stoplights and, you know, stop signs and, you know, increase the speed limit, like all these things. And ultimately, again, kind of going back to Peltzman effect, you know, people who are in the cars, if they are really seeking danger, they're going to remove themselves from the driving population, you know, uh, eventually. They'll be able to affect like a handful of cars. They won't be able to affect a thousand cars or a million cars. Um, so you can't really scale up danger with individual humans. You uh, you can scale it up when you have more of a top-down system or where you have like you know, fleets of cars that are you know communicating with each other and you know doing all the things that you know uh, AVs are supposed to be able to do, like you know, ride really close to each other, you know, at higher speeds, right? Uh, things like that. So and this was you know actually this um, uh, you've had people on your podcast that have talked about like, you know, Yagni, you know, before this is where it's like, no, you, you really are actually going to need this like, you know, weird edge case. You, you are going to need to think through this. Um, but even so, you know, what you can get is, you know, so I'm looking out at the weather here, you know, outside of LA and it's, you know, unusually it's raining. I might say like, I want to engineer a world where it's just sunny, you know, uh, 365 days of the year. Rather than it rains unpredictably or there's a storm or there. But if an outcome of that is once in a while, you have no idea when, it's like you get the worst storm that's ever existed in like the history of the world. You know, I have to pause for a moment and say, uh, we better be careful about rolling this this new system out. Yeah. Because you know, this is gonna change some things. So what you're saying is when the outliers, right, those black swan events, I think they call them whether in, in nature or now we're talking about in software systems like an autonomous fleet, when the consequences of those are so drastic that maybe it's like a humanity endgame, or at least for everybody who happens to be out and about that day, yeah, then it's worth solving for those not even edge cases or corner cases. They're like black swan cases, or at least thinking about those things and weighing that into your decision-making process before you go all in on Right. something that works 99.9% right. of the time, but the time that it fails, everybody's dead. It fails big, yeah. You know, I've gone to like cybersecurity conferences. Like I've seen like the car hacking village, right? Like, you know, uh, and like people like figuring out how to hack cars, like just currently where there yeah. is limited damage you, you could do. So I think it's something that you should at least be thinking about. Um, the other, you know, effect, even if, that you know that type of an outcome is uh, solved. I don't know that it is solvable, but say that it is. You know, you have the other outcome. This is more of like a, a second order effect of how behavior changes. So, 
you know, I hear people say like, oh, well, with AVs, you know, um, we'll be able to streamline traffic to the point where you can get from the east side of LA to the west side of LA in 15 minutes, you know, something unheardable because, you know, traffic is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, the cars will be able to, you know, move much more quickly. They'll, you know, ride really close to each other. But the reality there is, of course, you know, human behavior changes. If I can get to the west side of LA, like I'll, I'll go more often. So I'll have more people, you know, taking cars. The traffic will go back up. And it was like reminding me, um, and this, this is actually a book that I didn't realize was popular with developers, but because I, I read it, you know, years ago from more of like a, an urban planning perspective, but uh, a pattern language, like Christopher Alexander's a, a pattern language. I don't know that one. Where he talks about like, how do you design like a city or, or even like a house around human behaviors. And, you know, he says, like, if you optimize around cars, you're going to get more cars. Mm. So with the AV discussion, you might say, like, you know, should we be designing for cars to be able to get around really quickly or safely? Or should we be designing places so that people can enjoy them the most and get around and maybe maybe actually, like, doing things at a human scale or, like, a walking scale is actually good for like parts of uh, different neighborhoods. Right. Yeah. So it made me, you know, maybe think a lot about, you know, about this topic and certainly billions uh, have gone into uh, AV research. It's going to be interesting to see how things yeah. end up, you know, shaking out. Yeah. You know. Well, first we got to get to level four and level five before we can even right. see. <laughs> and they're struggling to get there. I think every year it's going to be here yeah. next year. Yeah. But uh, it's getting closer. We're starting to see some consequences. I'm, uh, Specifically, because Tesla, I think, has the most out there in the wild, the Tesla autopilot. And, you know, there's been some casualties and I think a death or two. And, um, you know, we're seeing some backlash to that. I think none of this is at scale yet, though, right? It's all at like one, two. Uh, I think Tesla has the most scale mm-hmm. out there, maybe not in a single locality, but but uh, in many localities. So, And there's like a lot of other things. And like, again, I'm, I'm saying... Uh, I am not against, you know, progress, certainly. But, um, like, there's other things that I do benefit from, like, currently when it comes to some of the the same autonomous vehicle tech. Like that, I don't know, like, uh, depending on if you're driving a car with this or not, but you get that, like, warning if you were going to change lanes and there is a vehicle and yeah. maybe you can't see it. Like, it's, you know, like, you know, right behind you. Has better eyes than you do, yeah. Yeah. So, like, uh, there's certainly, like, uh, a good... Camera, you know, human computer, you know, uh, meld that you can make. But uh, yeah, we should at least be thinking about what happens if you completely flip the switch over and every car is AV. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's some of them that have, and I think it's Waymo, but I could be wrong about this. There's like, there's no steering wheel. Mm. You know, it's like, well, what are we going to do in the case where we need to fall back to a human? Well, there's no steering wheel. So like, <laughs> they better know how to. Drive via some sort of you know digital interface or something. Uh, that's definitely a step in that direction. I do agree that at this time, at least, when it comes to computer systems, I think humans with superpowers is kind of like the best of the worlds, right? Like, let's equip humans to like take part, take care of the tedious parts. So they don't have to do that work to provide the superpowers. Like, hey, did you know you can now see behind you? For instance, I was actually at a museum, a Navy museum recently, we were watching some of the technology inside of these uh, fighter jets. And the way that the pilots can actually see 360 
Mm. And they can also see, I don't know what the other direction is, underneath them and above them completely as if the jet doesn't exist. Like they're sitting in there driving the jet wow. and it has enough cameras and enough smarts to like remove itself as if it's completely invisible. They can look down into the ocean directly underneath them. Like you couldn't, like there just doesn't, humans can't do that. But with the software that gives that, that pilot super, really superpowers to see everything around them. Pretty cool stuff. But yeah, removing the human completely, I think, is kind of closing the loop or taking that next step. And I, I'm also pro-progress, but I also am like, I think what you're saying is like, let's slow down and, and consider not just what's immediately going to happen, but what's going to happen with more units, with more time, right, at scale, and whether or not we want to guard against certain things now. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool, the low-code platform for developers to build internal tools. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool. Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, DoorDash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as a platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. So the Garmin one is interesting because it's um, there's two aspects that interest me, both from like the consumer standpoint of like individual dependence. Um, like if you depend on a Garmin GPS, whether it's mission critical or you're out riding your mountain bike. And it was that time period when Garmin was down, right? Like your, your life is immediately affected. Um, so there's that aspect. And then there's also like software dependence where it's Garmin is completely dependent upon whether it was a third-party package or however they got that ransomware, you know, inside of their system. There's like a supply chain problem perhaps on their side. Mm. And this is something that we think about a lot as developers is how much third-party risk can I take on in my supply chain, in other people's software, in being dependent upon maybe an integration with a company, mm -hmm. you know, that I trust, but maybe their system has a problem. And we have like this tangled web, I guess metaphorically in both cases, but a, a web of both dependencies and network systems where we have to decide how much am I willing to risk with other people's code, with other people's systems versus writing it ourselves. And so there's both aspects of that, like the Garmin side and then like the person using the Garmin. And I think when it comes to the individuals, I don't think we've ever been more dependent as a species hmm. on anything than we are on these smartphones today. It's memes, people walking along the street, staring at their phone, get hit by a car or something. We, we are attached at the hip. And I mean, like so much, it's like an extension of our brains. And so when there is problems with our phones, whether they're just offline or broken or lost or stolen or 
they're hacked, I mean, your life is in there. And so there's a lot of dependence upon a smartphone. And then from the Garmin side, deciding how much we are willing to trust third-party systems in order to move faster and accomplish things that we may not be able to accomplish on our own. I think there's definitely unintended consequences of running other people's code that we're all, it's, it's really a, mm-hmm. a trade-off and a difficult decision in many cases. What do I do? I don't know if you have any insights on that side of things, but. Well, th- I mean, one of the other bigger, you know, I think, you know, uh, hacks from around the same time as, uh, you know, Garmin and, and Twitter, you know, stories was um, SolarWinds, I believe was a supply chain. Yeah. You know, insertion. It was, yeah. If I remember right. Um, so, yeah, you, you certainly have those trade-offs. Um, but um, whereas in the past, maybe that trade-off would have been localized to just this one unnetworked you know, company, now it becomes a much bigger deal when there is dependency yeah. uh, across like you know, many different companies um, you know, on the same software. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this you know, in the beginning, but um, earlier in my career, I had you know, worked in telecom and I was always fascinated in, in um, like, if, if I had been a little older, you know, maybe, you know, uh, pre-internet when the hacking was primarily done on uh, telecom networks, hearing people talk about like those stories and, you know, hacking like dial tone on the old landlines and, you know, getting free calls and, and doing that. Even so, you know, in that case, like you have, you do have some like great examples of people like, you know, whatever, calling the White House or like, you know, uh, you know uh, getting just like unlimited, you know, uh, you know talk time. But uh, yeah, it does seem with a, a more inter- interconnected world, you know, um, the network effects, the scale effects are uh, just getting bigger. Mm-hmm. And part of that leads me to say, okay, we, we should just be more cognizant of how we design systems. And part, you know, might also be because I know even if I do everything I can, that like somebody else is uh, is not going to have the same care, or they're going right. to screw up something, or they're, they're like they don't have an incentive to be as careful. Like, or there's a mistake. Like, yeah, there's there's no end to mere incompetence. Yeah. It could be just mere incompetence. Sure, you know um, that you should also isolate at least some really crucial parts from you know being at risk. Yeah, uh, to something like that. Well, the most secure computer that there is is an air-gapped computer, right? It's one that is disconnected from everything else besides power. And the only way to hack that computer is to sit at it. But also the problem is that's not a very useful computer, you know? That's it. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's the rub. It's like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's secure, right. but it's also not all that useful. And so we have to live our lives somewhere in between. But when that's it comes it. to your mission critical, your, your family jewels, your pearls, you know, your, uh, maybe your Bitcoin private passphrase, maybe air gaps, the way to go. I don't know. Well, Paul, the blog is unintended consequences. Of course, all the links to all the articles, as well as the sign up sheet for everything to get Paul's future writings will be in our show notes. So you'll find them there. Uh, anything else that you're up to that you want to talk about before we call the show? Yeah. I'll, I'll mention two other things that are, I'll say related to this topic of systems. I wrote a short book about unit economics. So this is like understanding customer lifetime value, customer acquisition costs, like how businesses work, basically. It's called growth units. Yeah, this is something that I did you know, during the early part of the pandemic because I was teaching this topic and I've discovered that you know, people have actually you know, 
gotten value from the book. Uh, so cool. if you want to think about these, you know, these systems topics, but more in a internal company uh, setting, you know, growth units is something you might enjoy. And then I'll, I'll just also put a call out to whoever's listening. The next thing I'm writing about uh, is also a longer piece, probably a book length piece um, on market timing or what's called like the why now question with startups. In other words, how timing impacts your eventual success, like why this is a good time to build this specific company. I'm happy to speak to anybody who is kind of going through that thought process now, either in like presenting what you're doing to a potential investor, like why now is the right time to build this business, or if you're building a specific product within an existing organization, like why the timing is good for your development of, you know, that next specific thing. Otherwise, this has been a lot of fun and uh, really appreciate uh, what you do, of course. And thanks for having me on. You bet. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. We'd love to have you back sometime, especially as you do more writing and more unintended consequences happen out there in the world for us to discuss, analyze, and hopefully learn from. So thanks again, Paul. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Jared. All right, that's the changelog for this week. Thanks for listening. If this is your first time with us, subscribe now at changelog.fm. And if you're a longtime listener, do us a solid by recommending the show to a friend. Word of mouth is still the number one way people find new podcasts they love. A couple updates for you on a few of our other shows. Matt Ryer from GoTime did an excellent AMA with the Go team at Google. Lots of juicy details in there about their big generics rollout. Listen in at gotime.fm slash 210. And on JS Party, we rang in the new year by adding Ali Spittle to the team. And of course, we also predicted what's happening in 2022. Check it out at jsparty.fm slash 207. Special thanks to our partners for supporting our work. Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. Y'all are awesome. And to the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for cranking out new beats for us on the regular. Next up on the show, Adam nerds out on file systems with Matt Ahrens, who co-founded the ZFS project at Sun way back in 2001. That's all for this week. We'll talk to you again next time. <laughs>